For McMaster University, I'm John Preston, and you're listening to Big Ideas for a Changing World. In this series, you'll hear from researchers from McMaster's Faculty of Engineering and beyond who are creating innovative solutions to our world's greatest challenges. I have the chance to see some of these solutions up close as the faculty's Associate Dean for Research and External Relations. Today, we'll explore a robust academic industry partnership which has led to the production of millions of face shields and other protective gear since this March. You'll hear from Simon Omenhurst, Program Manager at the McMaster Manufacturing Research Institute, better known as MMRI, and Peter Taminga, Operations Manager at Whitebird, a Hamilton-based packaging company. How did these two teams come to work together in the midst of a pandemic and what's next for the collaboration? With that, a warm welcome to Peter and Simon on Big Ideas for a Changing World. Okay, so let's get started. Please introduce yourself, give us your title and a brief background of your career in manufacturing. Peter, let's start with you. I, I started in, in industrial supply many years ago, which gave me a really unique opportunity to visit most likely hundreds of different manufacturing facilities working on um, you know, cost savings opportunities and inventory management solutions. And a number of years ago, uh, Whitebird was looking for some assistance in the operations. And so I had uh, made a move over to Whitebird uh, and started to manage their operations. So utilizing some of that manufacturing experience, you know, a lot of the different operational components I picked up from those other companies and working with them, I've been able to make, um, you know, a number of improvements and, and just help uh, ownership here develop some, some positive growth. Okay, Simon, tell us about yourself. Sure. So uh, I started at McMaster in 2006. Uh, I went to McMaster for my undergraduate in mechanical engineering. I did my first project with the MMRI in my third year, connected with the director of the MMRI, Stephen Veltice, and quickly got a sense that the group had pretty strong connections with industry and the kind of work they did was uh, really in line with my interests. So once I finished my mechanical engineering degree in 2010, uh, sort of at the height of the uh, the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, manufacturing was in trouble, uh, not a lot of jobs available, so I decided to do a master's in the MMRI, and uh, I never left. So I've been there now for 10 years, so started as a graduate student, worked mostly on industry projects through my two years uh, in my master's, and then was able to generate enough industry projects and funding to stay on as a research engineer, and I've uh, just stayed with the group and helped it grow since. Simon, if you were to take a guess about the number of projects you've been involved with either directly or through supervising other MMRI staff and the number of companies, what numbers would you come up with? Over 100 companies for sure, hundreds of projects, uh, working with well over 1,000 people in the 10 years I've been there. Peter, can you give us an overview of Whitebird and what kinds of services and projects the company works on? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Whitebird has been around for over 30 years, primarily in the packaging and janitorial business. We have uh, customers in all sorts of areas from display work to, uh, you know, meat processing. And so we're producing uh, or we're supplying packaging, uh, everything from, you know, basic brown box and, and tape to full custom displays that you might see in the grocery stores or anywhere else. 
and the manufacturing side being more prevalent now. You know, we've we've just recently made a large investment in Canada's first single pass digital printer, which has been a, a huge opportunity for us, and we're very excited about that. And obviously, with as supplying shields right now, we did uh, supply PPE as a value add to our customers as well. So we do try to cover all our bases in terms of being a one-stop shop for many of our customers. And um, yeah, just continue to um, try to add value and, and innovation for our customers. Simon, you've been with McMaster Engineering for a number of years. Uh, as you mentioned, you've done your undergrad and master's degree here. And you're now part of the team embedded within the McMaster Manufacturing Research Institute. Can you tell us about the mission of MMRI? What kinds of industry collaboration the team typically takes on? And what keeps you interested in working in that environment? Sure. So the MMRI was started in 1999 with about $20 million in federal and provincial funding uh, to build an institute uh, to support industry, to support Canadian manufacturers. So it consists of six groups uh, that span different manufacturing processes from metal forming to plastics to the machining group, which I'm a part of. It has definitely evolved. Uh, when it was first started, I think there was a stronger focus on uh, fundamental research and training. Um, but in the years since, uh, especially around sort of 2010, uh, we started pivoting more and more towards supporting of industry. In the past 10 years and currently, we still have a strong emphasis on training, uh, both industry people and traditional undergraduate, graduate students. Uh, and we also do our fundamental research as well, has most of our expertise in machining. Uh, so we aim to provide our people, our knowledge and our equipment resources to assemble them around industry partners challenges. So we find a way to take our resources and, and solve problems for industry. As I mentioned, uh, our focus is mainly in machining, or at least the group I'm a part of. Machining is used for just about any product you can imagine, whether uh, directly to produce it or indirectly to produce the machines or equipment uh, that is used to produce products. So that lines us up with just about any part of the manufacturing industry uh, that you could imagine. Most of our partners and projects are in automotive, uh, just because that's uh, one of the largest uh, industries in Ontario. Uh, but we do have lots of projects and partners in aerospace, medical, nuclear, uh, you name it, we've probably had a project or partner in that industry. Okay, so now let's go back to March when the pandemic hit and it became clear that we were going to face a shortage of masks and face shields in Ontario. Simon, your team took immediate action in an effort to help. Can you tell us how this got started? Sure. So um, beginning of March, uh, you know, COVID was starting to be more and more in the news. Uh, we were proceeding with our sort of normal run of the mill project work. March 13th, I think, was when McMaster announced its closing and it became clear that COVID was really something to be concerned about. And then the media started filling with uh, shortages of ventilators, masks, face shields, PPE. Uh, we knew that this is something that we could help with. We just weren't really sure where. So the very first thing that we thought we could do was ventilators. On March 17th, um, I started searching the internet for uh, basically information on ventilators, trying to connect with other people to figure out how we could help. And I stumbled across this group called Helpful Engineering, which was a self-organized, self-assembled group of uh, over 12,000 people from across the world uh, organized into a chaotic uh, Slack channel 
Um, that from there was organizing into sub channels and groups to tackle different tasks like face shields or masks or uh, ventilators or testing. So I sort of found my way to the groups that were working on ventilators and uh, we worked pretty hard to figure out a way to generate a better than nothing alternative for ventilators. So if a doctor had a COVID patient uh, that was in need of a ventilator and all of the existing ones were in use, uh, we were trying to provide that doctor with an option that was better than nothing. So we, we were trying to find something that we could manufacture in mass quantities, fast, easy, uh, robust, and uh, we actually came across a 1960s uh, patent of an army ventilator that looked really promising. No moving parts could be made from a piece of aluminum about the size of a cell phone. And uh, we aggressively pursued that. We actually found one in an art museum in Chicago because we were desperately trying to find a working prototype of this thing. Uh, so that got shipped across the country to California. And I was uh, working online with uh, groups of people there to reverse engineer it, got the designs and started prototyping them in our labs uh, here at McMaster. Uh, so within about three, four, five days, within five days, we had prototype of that army vent on our bench in our lab working. And uh, what we quickly learned is that none of us would really want that thing used on us. Um, modern ventilators are quite advanced. So uh, we learned that the better than nothing alternative, that sort of standard we were trying to work towards was a, a lot higher than we anticipated. So at that point, we realized that we probably were not going to be able to contribute to ventilators in a real meaningful way, but we knew we still had some resources that we could put towards the COVID effort. So face shields was an opportunity that was in front of us that seemed a lot more realistic for us to, to find some success. So I went back to that same helpful engineering group, um, found my way to the groups working on face shields, and they had done a, a good amount of the groundwork for, for us to start. So they had identified a few and reviewed a few designs. Um, so different people across the world working with their local uh, hospitals had been putting designs in front of them saying, hey, what do you think of these? And they'd filtered it down to a couple that uh, had some promising, promising feedback. So we ended up uh, identifying one from the University of Wisconsin, which was pretty simple. Uh, it's the same one that uh, Ford ended up manufacturing here in Oakville. And they, this helpful engineering group also had a whole range of suggestions for how these things could be produced. And one of the things I saw that, uh, so the face shield component can be cut out with something called a flatbed die cutter. And one of the people in that group mentioned that this is something that box manufacturers have. So I thought to myself, hey, Whitebird's here in Hamilton. I know they make boxes. Maybe they've got something, uh, something that we can use. So we had the, the start of what we needed to make this happen. Uh, so I reached out to Whitebird, just basically uh, sent them an email saying, we've got this. Are you guys interested? And uh, that's when I got connected with Peter. All right, Peter. When Simon first reached out with the idea of making face shields at Whitebird, what was the initial reaction? The initial reaction was, um, I would say, excitement and opportunity to, to assist uh, with the pandemic. Um, Sometimes you can be in a place where you don't, um, you want to do something, but you don't know what to do. And so with Simon coming to us with this opportunity, it was, it was fairly exciting. So, um, you know, I was a little bit unsure of, of some of the things that they were proposing with face shields. I wasn't sure if, if our equipment was able to handle it. But as soon as he connected with, uh, with myself, I think uh, our, our president, Hendrick, maybe received the first email and, and he asked me to get involved. I reached out to Simon and within 
um, you know, with, with, within a day we were communicating, trying to identify um, materials and, and if it was a feasible uh, things to do at Whitebird. I, I remember those, those times quite well. I mean, it was a time when there was tremendous initiatives being taken in the face of, I would say, unprecedented uncertainty. None of us were really sure what would the needs were going to be, just that we wanted to get going and, and do something that would be positive. Can you take us through what the steps that it took to go from having an idea about let's mass produce face shields to actually getting the production off the ground? Where did the production take place and how many people were involved? Yeah, it, um, it really started just with myself and Simon at the beginning, um, just for the sake of uh, everybody else was, we, we were still continuing to be busy. So deemed as an essential service with customers in, in the food industry, our production didn't slow down at the very beginning of this pandemic. So it, most of my focus really just shifted. I had talked to my production uh, supervisor about, you know, just letting him know I'm getting involved in this project. Uh, he tried to support me in the sense of just allowing me the time to focus on it. And it really started with um, identifying materials just to see, you know, what would work. We had a couple ideas. Okay, this is the machine that we may be able to cut it with. Working with Simon and some of our uh, tooling suppliers to identify a the proper tooling that might be able to cut this, you know, chat with them to even determine if they have cut plastic material on these dies before. The dies are for these units are pretty rudimentary. They're just, you know, steel rule, they call it with, uh, it's getting basically getting punched out between two uh, heavy duty rolls. So we needed to make sure that those blades would stand up to something other than paper. So I know that we had reached out to Simon and he had a number of different samples uh, that he had been working with on some of their automation tables at McMaster. We got a couple rolls, we got a test die going, um, and we just started cutting it to see what it would look like. Initially, some of that stuff, uh, some of the initial prototypes were a little bit, I would say just not the quality that we had hoped for, but we made some adjustments with the dies. And at one point, I think we, once we identified it would work, we, we just recreated the tooling. We went out and got a number of different tools, knowing that they were going to be most likely damaged in the production process, just because we were cutting uh, materials that the machine wasn't used to and the tools weren't used to. So I think initially I must have bought maybe three to four different tools to go through that machine um, with an intent of meeting McMaster's requirements, or, or I shouldn't say McMaster, Hamilton Health Sciences requirements for face shields, which I think we were estimating at about maybe 2,000 units a day. At that point, we really didn't know how many they were going to use. So that seemed like a huge number, not producing anything, throwing a couple test runs through, really not sure what that was going to look like. And once we identified and were able to start cutting, then it was focusing on some of the other components. Some of the other products are, you know, these shields were made with elastic material. Uh, the, the hospital specifically looking for non-latex product. That was a challenge in and itself to identify or get suppliers for because everybody in North America, let alone across the globe was looking for similar materials to produce PPE. And the same went with foam. There was uh, some foam suppliers that we were trying to locate, um, trying to identify pricing that would be reasonable for our customers. Um, and we managed going through a few different suppliers before we found the right ones in those areas. So we did a lot of testing, probably worked with about three different foam suppliers and a few different elastic suppliers until we really found out what worked 
and set up shop in our showroom with maybe one or two tables. Uh, I think Simon and I uh, and maybe one or two other people started to generate some just some prototypes and start identifying the types of tools that we would need in order to get this done in a higher volume and just started to grow up from there. We, you know, the, the, it was a lot of fun working with, with McMaster and with Simon because, you know, it just felt like we were developing something new um, every single day that would uh, create more productivity and allow us to reach our goal of 2000 a day at the time. We really didn't know what the, there was no clear plan. This all happened so fast. We, we just sort of had to do the next best thing in front of us. So the challenge would arise and we'd find a way to get around it and then work on the next one. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Like you said, Peter. Yeah, it was great. I mean, yeah, all those challenges kind of presented their own unique solution. And and to be honest with you, I mean, having the resources at McMaster um, just made it really easy. It was fun because when, usually when you have an idea, it takes a lot, there's a lot of roadblocks of going, uh, you know, from the concept to implementation but we were able to take, for instance, you know, a concept of, of cutting this roll, these rolls of uh, plastic um, from concept to, you know, manufactured in a, in a McMaster f- facility within less than three days. And then mm-hmm. days after implementing it on site, and surprisingly, it worked fantastic. We had to make some tweaks. I think we sent it back once or twice, and it returned a day later. It was a really unique experience that I enjoyed. And that just kind of snowballed and continued. And we, we met different roadblocks with challenges and supply and having to make adjustments to these uh, unique tools that we've created. And, and we're able to work together to, to figure those out. And to give a, a sense of timeline, um, I, I first contacted Whitebird on March 24th. And I think we had our first face shield off the quote unquote production line on April 4th or April 5th. Does that sound about right, Peter? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and and uh, to get to that stage alone was day after day of figuring stuff out, building things, trying them, uh, setting up in their showroom. And once we got to that point, uh, I think less than one week later, less than five days of production, we'd already outgrown the space at Whitebird. That's, I think, when you found the second location there, Peter, where we could get a lot more people in. So we started, our original estimate was 1,000 to 2,000 a day. And we thought that would be ambitious. And I think we hit that within three days. We were already exceeding that. Uh, and two weeks later, I think we were into 10 or 20,000 a day, Peter. Yeah, as soon as we had a chance to, to expand, I mean, we had a really good opportunity because of the timing that this kind of hit hard. Um, and obviously schools closing, we had a number of students that we could draw labor on, which was extremely helpful. So we were able to ramp up to a significant amount of employees. I want to say our first site, we probably 20 to 30 people initially on our, uh, the, the first ramp up that we uh, set up in People's Church in Hamilton. They had a gym that was available because their daycare was closed and they had a facility that they weren't able to use. And so we set up shop there. And I think by the time that we were in full production there, we had about 35 people at that site alone that were producing up to 35,000 units a day. And, and even that had its unique challenges. Found We had set it up initially. I think we made three or four different adjustments to the workstations, like significant adjustments, before we really found a, what we believe to be a better, one of the best ways to, to produce a product. And I think we were very efficient at it. So 
after that, we felt that it was, there was obviously a risk. We didn't want to run the risk of shutting down production in the event that somebody got COVID. And so we try to mitigate that risk by identifying a second manufacturing site, which we did in Brampton. We basically started over there. Uh, we had a, uh, a Christian school there who had actually reached out to us through a relationship from one of our employees asking if, if you know, they could help. They, they wanted an opportunity to help those in their, in their community that were out of work. And so, yeah, I mean, they, they provided a space for us and they actually assisted us with hiring the people there. So we ramped up a second site. So that way, the first one, if somebody got COVID or it got serious and it, for some reason got shut down, it wouldn't, sh it wouldn't shut down the, um, the flow of product to the hospitals that needed it at the time. And they ramped up to almost uh, actually more than people's church, probably up to about 40 people. And then we had both sites competing for productivity um, goals. And, and that's when we really started to, we were, I think, up to close to 70,000 units a day. And I, I think that's a point we missed. M much of this originally was driven by the hospitals. Uh, so we were in touch with them and they were telling us that uh, they were predicting PPE shortages and they had less than two weeks supply of things like face shields and masks. So when Peter says that he didn't want to risk production shutting down, that was a real concern because from what I understand, we were, Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, but we were the main supply of face shields for St. Joe's and HHS here in Hamilton. Uh, I think they maybe had one other supplier, but uh, they preferred the product from us. Yeah. And, and, you know, as soon as we let people know that we were, we were making these shields, there was a number of other hospitals that were just screaming for them because the need was so high at the beginning. We worked with a number of different hospitals and, and we're still working with those hospitals now, especially with the second wave hitting where that, that requirement's going back up again. So Peter, you were distributing face shields to institutional buyers. Are you also selling them to the public? We have a pretty wide range of customers, obviously because we have such a big customer base already in the packaging industry. So we're providing shields to manufacturing, industrial supply, hospitals, dental doctors, ministries, schools, long-term care, almost, I would say pretty much everything right now. Then, I'll, yeah, a lot of our original customers that, you know, when COVID hit, they were looking for everything, right? I mean, we, we were stocking, just like everybody else, we were stocking out of hand sanitizer. You couldn't get Lysol wipes anywhere. It's still hard to get them. And so this kind of naturally turned into one of the, the safety product categories that we have here at Wiper too. So we definitely had our standard customers buying small quantities of them. And yeah, we wanted to be able to help out everybody. As we're facing the second wave of COVID-19, what is Whitebird's current production capacity for face shields? That's kind of an interesting question. In, I would say as we rounded out August, we actually shut down our Brampton facility because the demand was lowering. Uh, the hospitals wisely started stockpiling product uh, in the event of a second wave. So we had actually almost shut down both facilities by the time September came around. And we were, you know, we had a, a specific customer that kind of kept us going in a small in a handful of people to keep, keep it moving. And then only a week or two ago, we started to see those hospitals come back when the second wave started and, and start submitting POs again. So now we went from 
dwindling down to five employees and now we're raising it back up to 40, 50 employees probably for the next few months. I'm thankful for my accountant who's acting as our HR and doing all this hiring because she's been a tremendous help. Uh, the amount of hiring and, and, and payroll that's involved in going up and down like that is significant. So I have to say thank you to her. This has become common during the COVID crisis as researchers pivot to try to produce the innovation and the products that people need to deal with this crisis. Simon, how has being part of this sprint changed the way MMRI conducts research and works with companies? Honestly, it, it hasn't changed too much. I, I think we were positioned really well to respond uh, because of the changes we'd gone through in the years prior to COVID. Um, as I mentioned previously, in 2010, uh, the MMRI was not in great shape as which was much of manufacturing. That's when I joined. And uh, in the years following that, uh, our director, Stephen Veltheis, and I worked very hard to build the MMRI into what it is today. And through those years, we worked closely with industry and we had to learn how to respond quickly. Timelines in industry are, are, are fast and we had to learn how to interact and, and work around those sort of timelines and how to find ways to be valuable to our partners, which took a little bit of a, a different sort of mindset than, than what you use uh, in fundamental research. Through those years and those learning processes, we, we learned how to react and, and provide valuable solutions and support to industry partners. So when COVID hit and uh, we had to pivot fast and, and come up with ways to support companies, um, we were really well positioned already. And, and a really big part of that was the, uh, the funding that we had from the federal and uh, provincial governments, um, in particular, the Advanced Manufacturing Consortium and the Southern Ontario Network for Advanced Manufacturing Innovation, or Tsunami. Uh, these are standing pools of funding that we can draw on to fund our people and purchase materials to support industry projects. So with that funding in place, we, we had a, the freedom that we needed in the years prior to build our people, build our resources, build our lab and experience into, into a machine that could respond to this quickly. Without that funding, I, I don't think we would have been in a place where we could have uh, helped launch this project or, or some of the other ones uh, that we engaged in our, the other COVID-19 response projects. Being a part of the sprint um, is an experience I'll remember forever, for sure, but I don't think it changed too much how we work with companies. How has this experience perhaps informed Whitebird's mission or priorities looking ahead? What would you tell other companies who are looking to pivot their production in a similar way? In general, I think that Whitebird's uh, mission has not changed in the sense ownership here at Whitebird is very keen on humanitarian efforts, assisting people, very compassionate. It's one of the things I really enjoy about working at Whitebird is the values that they hold here as a company. So in terms of general values, I think that you know, that's the whole reason why we did react quickly, because there was some passion that was ignited when we were uh, contacted to assist with this. You know, in terms of, you know, other people's involvement or uh, looking to pivot their production, I think it really depends. I mean, I, I was, I am and still excited about what we've been able to done um, to generate PP um, and create supply for these companies. And, and I'm not going to lie, it has been an opportunity for Whitebird through the pandemic as well to generate sales and profitability. However, ultimately, I think that Canadians 
are still not quite as committed to buying Canadian as, for instance, the U.S. might be in buying American. And the reason I say that is, you know, we're still buying a lot of overseas things. So to say that this is a viable long-term manufacturing project for Whitebird may not be realistic in order, you know, in terms of the compete level. And I, although we'd like to, to be able to do that, uh, and we've enjoyed the experience and been certain aspects that the government throughout this process has helped with in order to allow us to produce product, there's also other roadblocks that could potentially create some resistance long-term in terms of competing and, and doing those things. So I think it's great that we've been able to assist when the need comes. Um, but I don't know what that looks like in the future. And um, I, I mean, generally, I would say it's been a fantastic opportunity. So those, you know, I'm always, I would always recommend people step up and, and try to assist um, when something like this happens, especially the relationships that you have and you build from that. I mean, some of the things that we've learned from working with McMaster University uh, and Simon, it's, it's been a ton of fun and it's, it's given some pride into our own company. So it develops your culture, right? It creates a positive culture at your business as well. So. There's lots of good things to take out of it. Whether I would recommend somebody pivots their business uh, depends on what terms you're asking. Working with Peter and the, the senior management there was a fantastic experience. I don't think this would have been possible or as successful if uh, they weren't so engaged and on top of this. Um, we worked together every day for two months and their vice president, uh, William Highcoop, um, I remember at one point uh, the flatbed die cutter we were using, which is basically just a giant cookie cutter, was having some problems and needed some replacement. And he was, the vice president, William, was uh, digging into that machine, cleaning it up, pulling out old disgusting rubber parts that needed replacement. That sort of hands-on attitude was just prolific throughout this entire process. Peter to everyone really on Peter, on uh, Whitebird's end. Yeah, so it was, it was really great. And I, I don't think it would have been as successful without uh, the people at the top really digging in and contributing in such a hands-on way. Peter, the experience with Whitebird finding that at the end of the first wave, that the orders from our healthcare system for your PPE was beginning to dry up and that they were shifting back to using overseas product. I find quite surprising. At that point in time, everybody understood that we would at some point be facing a second wave. And I think it's not surprising that the need for Canadian produced PPE returned. It seems awfully short-sighted that the, that the healthcare system moved away from Canadian products so quickly. Do you have any comments on that? Uh, well, there is a couple of variables. One of those of which the government had handed out medical distribution licenses, the MDELs, which we had to acquire in order to sell this type of PPE. So you need a, a license to distribute, which we did get. Now, there are certain regulations uh, for these shields that I don't want to say they bypassed because they're still face shields, they still serve their purpose, they're still safe, um, but the necessity for has, having face shields, whether they were a quarter inch shorter or longer, was irrelevant in the immediate need of product um, for our healthcare workers. So generally speaking, hospitals have contracts with larger medical supply companies 
And so in the event of a pandemic, they're not forced to purchase from those and they can go elsewhere, which is why we've developed some really great relationships throughout this period with hospitals. But as the need uh, reduces and as the availability returns from those suppliers because they were stocked out for some time uh, because they weren't able to get overseas product, once that returned, they were uh, strongly encouraged to return to those contracts because they were a contractual uh, so that is one component. I, I wouldn't say it's only because of, of cost. I think that also the hospitals probably, and, and I can't speak uh, in positive terms. I don't, I don't know how the hospitals manage their PPE throughout the summer, but I know that, you know, going into different levels uh, with the government, things had relaxed. So I would expect that um, the PPE usage just simply dropped as well. Simon? What would be your advice for undergraduate students thinking about pursuing a career in research and advanced manufacturing? Say to make sure that you you get hands-on experience. There's a, an incredible amount of theory that you need to learn in four years of or four or five years of undergraduate engineering. Uh, so it, it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for hands-on. Uh, I know the faculties work hard to, to get in what they can, but it is really up to students uh, to augment their, their degrees and their experience uh, themselves to find opportunities to learn more uh, about the hands-on aspects of their interests. And I think that's, that's an aspect that, that was important for my ability to contribute here, as well as everyone I encountered on Whitebird's side uh, and my colleagues uh, who supported this project as well. Without our ability to use our hands to, to build jigs and fixtures and assemble these things and try them out, um, this was all a very manual process uh, because of the speed it needed to happen. There was no time for automation. So we had to build things. We had to test them. We had to try them. We had to have an idea of how these things were going to fit together. And that all comes from working with our hands in the past. So don't underestimate the value of hands-on experience as an engineer. Peter, I, in getting ready for today's uh, conversation, I did a little bit of looking into Whitebird's reputation. It has a reputation as an absolutely outstanding company to work for. And I think that's come through in your description of this project. What's your advice for a young person who's looking to establish a career at a company like Whitebird? I think ultimately people need to be able to have a little bit of fortitude um, and willingness to, to dig into problems. A big thing, obviously, being teamwork and being willing to, to collaborate with others. Sometimes it can be a challenge today, finding um, a workforce that is, is willing to work outside the job description and assist others uh, and really pitch in and, and looking at the customer as, you know, our customer, as opposed to, you know, coming into work each day and, and focusing on going home. <laughs> so... I think the biggest thing would be really being willing to expand yourself throughout the business, being willing to help others within the business, uh, whether it's your job or not, really showing that you're a team player and being able to generate um, solutions for the problems you have, you know, coming up to, to management, being a part of the, the, uh, the, the problem solving process. That's the incredible value is being able to present solutions to the problems rather than just bringing problems. Um, and if you have a whole team of people that are doing that on a regular basis, 
pretty much nothing that you can't tackle. So I would say, yeah, the fortitude and teamwork uh, focus would be a really big deal. All right, that's a terrific answer. Simon, you worked on a large range of projects and now we've heard about one of them. What are you, what are you working on these days? So when COVID hit, most all of our regular work stopped dead as I think happened with most people. And we started on COVID projects. So face shields, face shields is the one that I worked on most. Uh, my colleagues worked on uh, a range of other uh, products. So with supply chain strained, borders closing, uh, there was a surprising number of consumables in hospitals uh, that they were running out of. Um, so uh, one example is a uh, disposable covers for glide scopes that are used uh, when uh, a doctor wants to uh, inspect the uh, esophagus or uh, I'm getting outside my experience here but in any <laughs> case <laughs> it uh, gets contaminated obviously when it's used on a patient so they're uh, they're used and thrown away and uh, that was one that was needed for assessing COVID patients and the hospitals were running out of so uh, and in fact the supplier of them uh, flat out refused to increase production volumes Still not sure why. Uh, so we worked with local hospital to reverse engineer them and started producing them with a local injection molding company. Uh, so that's one of the project one of my part our colleagues worked on. Um, another one, our director Stephen Veldheis, uh, around May uh, testing was becoming uh, center of attention, and uh, every effort was being made to ramp up testing volumes. Uh, so since May, uh, our director has been working closely with uh, a group. Uh, to manufacture mass quantities of testing kits. So they're very close, actually, as we're recording this today, the very last proof of concept step is being uh, done at one of the hospitals here in Hamilton. And if it's successful, they'll have proof of concept complete for providing large volumes of testing kits. Uh, there's still lots of challenges with scaling that up in the manufacturing, but uh, that's, uh, I think, one of the most meaningful ones that's come out of our group uh, as we're finding that testing is and one of the most important things that we can be doing to respond to COVID-19. Uh, so the COVID projects um, are starting to peter off. Um, manufacturers figured out how to get back to work safely with COVID precautions fairly quickly. Uh, so many of our partners were back up and running production by mid-May, early June. Uh, it took them some time to sort of get comfortable with uh, how things were going now. And so our industry projects, our standard sort of work is, has picked up quite strongly. So we're, we're pretty much back to pre-COVID levels of normal project work now. Is there anything you'd like to add about the research, the process, or the impact of your work on our communities? I would just like to add that it was, uh, it was a lot of fun working with McMaster University. It was uh, something that I think presented some opportunities and kind of opened my eyes to uh, what collaborating with local businesses and local um, programs can really do to progressing your, your productivity and, and creating innovation. So it's definitely something that we hope to do more of, maybe getting more involved with MMRI to identify other possible solutions in our general business. Uh, but yeah, it's been really enjoyable and um, we definitely appreciate the assistance we had from McMaster. So it's, it's been a real privilege to work for the MMRI. Um, I get to work in a lab full of cool equipment uh, and our partnership with industry means that I get to work on real world problems. Uh, so I've, I've really enjoyed 
uh, my time in the MMRI and it's given me the opportunity to, I think, magnify the effect that I can have to help Canadian manufacturing. Peter touched on it a little bit earlier, uh, the importance of Canadian manufacturing. Manufacturing is one of the, the pillars of any economy. Every dollar of generating manufacturing activity uh, in a, an economy generates three or four times as much uh, follow-on economic activity. So if you, you pay someone a dollar to be an engineer to manufacture, that engineer takes that dollar and goes, spends it on at a restaurant, which pays the salary of a, a server or a cook. So it's, I think I would want to reiterate the importance of Canadian manufacturing and how important it is to keep it strong and support it. Um, that doesn't mean by absolutely everything Canadian. We live in a, a, a global environment, um, but I think it is important for people to think when they're making purchases to at least think about buying Canadian products and understanding uh, that that does have a real impact on the, the success and the prosperity of our country. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Ideas for a Changing World. This show was produced by Jesse Park and edited by Dan Kim of the Faculty of Engineering. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or let us know your thoughts on social media. We're at McMaster Engineering on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. See you next time.